Today on the podcast, I sit down with Donald Robertson, who's a writer, cognitive behavioral psychotherapist, and trainer. Now, Donald specializes in teaching evidence-based psychological skills, and he's known as an expert on the relationship between modern psychotherapy, or CBT, and classical Greek and Roman philosophy. I mean, he's one of those people who's probably studied more about the ancient Stoics like Marcus Aurelius than, than very few people on this planet. And Robertson has been researching Stoicism and applying it in his work for over 20 years. And, and he really is one of the founding members of modern-day Stoicism. He actually is one of the founding members of a nonprofit organization, Modern Stoicism. And if you really want to better understand the Stoics and how we can use their practices that they used 2,000 years ago today, because they're still incredibly helpful, I think you'll really enjoy this episode. I first came across Donald's work from his book, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor. And if you're interested in that, I have a massive recap online that's accessible to the Momentum Makers uh, community, where you guys can read all of my favorite takeaways there, which really gives you insights into what we uncover on this episode about how to think more clearly like a stoic. So if you guys are interested in that, I hope you enjoyed this episode with Donald Robertson. I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. If you're enjoying the podcast, then you might want to check out some of the other things I'm working on behind the scenes. I put out a weekly newsletter called Momentum Monday, which is just a quick synthesis of everything I've been reading, listening to, and watching during the week. I also do a once-a-month deep dive called The Distillery, which is a long-form distillation on someone whose thinking has greatly impacted me. You can check out past distillations of Josh Waitskin, Yen Liao, and Nick Konis, and everything else we're putting on at whatgotyouthere.com. Hey guys, it's Sean, and if you've enjoyed any of the podcasts over the years, I would love, and I truly mean love, if you check out my Momentum Makers Inner Circle community. Now, this is just a community for growth mindset learners. I mean, people who are really voracious learners. They're interested in growing and expanding and uncovering the foundational principles, mindsets, and commonalities that I've synthesized down after sitting down with hundreds of the world's most successful people. This really is a community for people who who want to create positive change in their own lives. You're a voracious learner. You're a seeker of wisdom. You're a pursuer of self-mastery. And what you get for being part of this community is you get unlimited access to my expert masterclass calls. And so what these are is calls with people who have been on the podcast where you get to ask them specific questions and we go deep on certain topics. You also become part of this community. You get exclusive access to our monthly community calls where we discuss ideas and we grow together. You also get unlimited access to all of my book recaps. There's 50 plus I've done and I put more out each week. You also get access access to my distillery, which are the mini biographies on someone whose thinking has greatly impacted me. You also get my Momentum Monday weekly newsletter. So if you're interested in this, I would love for you to continue to grow and grow with us, our Momentum Maker community. So you guys can click the link below and check it out. Donald, welcome to what got you there. How are you doing today? I'm very well. I'm very well. How are you? I'm doing really well. I would love to start though. I want to know, has there been a consistent theme or consistent thing that you've been trying to solve or learn or uncover throughout the entire course of all the years you've been working? Yeah, I mean, I guess um, the reason I first became interested in philosophy and therapy and stuff like that, and uh, also in meditation, uh, was I was just kind of looking for a philosophy of life, basically. Um, I guess I had a kind of Christian upbringing as a, a child, uh, in the Church of Scotland, um, and then I kind of left that behind, and I was probably looking for something to kind of fill that gap. And uh, I thought I'd find it in academic philosophy, and uh, I, I didn't really find it when I did my philosophy degree. But afterwards, after graduating, I learned about the Stoics, and I studied them, and I just suddenly felt as if it slotted into place perfectly for me. And that was over 25 years ago now, I think. So I'm, I'm curious now, just better understanding our own selves, right? Like we're, we're all in search of how does this become practical? So I'm thinking about your background within CBT and then how you combine this with stoicism. I'm wondering for you, what have you found to be some of the most helpful exercises over the years in terms of uncovering some of that self-knowledge? I think, um, let's see, God, there are so many. The first book I wrote on stoicism, I listed all the psychological exercises 
that I could find, and that many of which Hado had listed, and I compared them to exercises that exist in modern psychotherapy, like the ones that I could find in Stoicism, and there were about 18. So there were loads of them. So some of the main ones that contribute to self-knowledge, I think, are, first of all, to know ourselves, I think we have to know what our core values are. So the Stoics and the Greek philosophers in general would say that means knowing our telos, our fundamental goal, like the meaning of life. Why are we here? What is it we're trying to achieve? What's our real goal? Is it just to make loads of money? Like, is it to get, you know, as many followers on social media as possible? Or is there some other goal that we're supposed to have, that nature intended us to have this, that's more fundamental to our very existence? And the ancient philosophers argued about that, and their different schools were defined in some ways by the different definition that they give of it. Um, some said it was pleasure, some said it was peace of mind, some said it was knowledge. But for the Stoics, the telos is arity or virtue. It's to excel uh, in accord with reason. So it's to apply reason consistently to our daily lives, which they saw as a kind of moral or practical wisdom. And they thought, if you can even come close to that, you'll be flourishing and achieving the fundamental goal of human existence. Nature has given us self-awareness and reason, so we should use it well. How do we do that? The Stoics think we have a kind of blind spot that gets in the way. Um, we get confused about what our values are and what it would look like to flourish. We're misled by external appearances. And they thought one way around that is to contemplate what we admire most in other people. This is a technique that we also use today in what we call values clarification in positive psychology and cognitive therapy. So we would say, who are the people you admire most? What is it that you actually admire about them? Is it that they've got loads of money? Is it that they've got loads of followers? Or is there something more fundamental that you see as admirable in people's character? Like, is it wisdom? Is it courage? Is it integrity? Is it creativity? Is it character traits like that that you really admire in your heroes? And it could also be historical figures or even fictional characters that you admire, but what makes them genuinely admirable to you? And once we've explored that, we can then say, well, how much time do you spend each day in minutes trying to actually embody the qualities that you most admire in other people? And I learned quickly that the most common answer to that question among my clients in psychotherapy uh, was zero minutes, like, which is pretty <laughs> weird. That's pretty shocking, right? So one of the most powerful techniques is to go, well, could you only spend one minute yeah. a day trying to do what you've just told me you consider to be the most important thing in life? Like, ah, the most important thing in life is just to kind of have compassion or to exhibit genuine, how much time did you spend doing that yesterday? Nothing, none. Like, well, could we maybe get that up to like one minute or two minutes at least, you know, like, because then maybe in a sense, you're just frittering your life away. What are we spending all our time doing if we're not actually like living in accord with the things that we ourselves considered to be most important. And the Stoics thought this was a crazy situation. Like they, they thought we we're all kind of nuts. Like, you know, they literally, they said we're, we're all foolish and insane because we get, we, we stray so far off the path in life and we need to really reflect on our values in this kind of way and ask ourselves these very penetrating questions and kind of drag ourselves back onto our own uh, true path in life. Doesn't uh, Marcus Aurelius, doesn't he highlight this in the beginning of Meditations? He's basically describing the, the character traits of the people yeah. he most admires. Yeah, and he later in the book, he even gives a rationale for it. He says, nothing gladdens your heart so much as reflecting on the virtues of, the, of those closest to you. So he's doing this as a way also of improving his mood. And he, elsewhere in the Meditations, he returns to it and does it again. But the whole of book one is him systematically trying to summarize the qualities that he admires and about 17 people, they're all family members or tutors. Um, only one of them is a woman, uh, his mother, interestingly. But uh, they're mainly Stoic philosophers that have taught him and uh, members of his uh, family that influenced him. So, so you mentioned, based on different schools of thought, different people are going after different things for you. What, what rings mm -hmm. truest to yourself? What are, you, what are you going after in pursuit of for a great life? I think some kind of wisdom, you know, or insight or enlightenment is the, the key to me. Um, and I guess also kind of operationally to, to kind of get there, I, I honestly believe that contemplating our own mortality, I, like, I think we're all in a trance. 
like we're all kind of hypnotized you know we're, we're all essentially kind of like you know we're all zombies you know we live in this world where we're brainwashed by consumerism and like hedonism and you know social media and all these kind of superficial values that we get bombarded with from day one you know so we we grow up quite confused the stoics called it tufos which means a mist like smoke and mirrors that surround us like it's all an illusion um, the, the prevailing values of society are all kind of back to front in a sense. And how do we snap out of that trance? Like, we kind of get glimpses that maybe, like, how do we actually wake up like, and snap out of it? And one of the things that has the power to snap us out of it, I, it seems, is a confrontation with our own mortality. When you're lying on your deathbed and you think, this is it, buddy, my time's up, maybe this is it. Like, you know, I might only have minutes left. Like, and you look back on your life, then I think that can wrench you out of the like the the smoke and mirrors, and uh, enable you to look at your life from a very different perspective and think, you know, was it worth it? Nobody has on their gravestone etched, "I wish I'd more, I wish I'd spent more time on Facebook," or "I wish I'd watched more episodes of Friends," or something like that. You know, from that ultimate perspective like the deathbed perspective often we think i wish i'd be more creative i wish i'd been more compassionate like i wish i'd kind of like dug deeper to achieve insight into what this is all about before it like my time is up um so it makes us radically reappraise our, our values now i realize you know by the time you're 40 i think you know i reckon at least half of us have had one or more brushes with death um, by around about 40 or 50. Not everyone. Some people go their whole life and never really, it never really hits them. Other people really early on. And it could be you find yourself in a dangerous situation. You think, whoa, that was a close shave. Like, I thought I was a goner there. I'm lucky to be alive. Or you have a health scare and you think, geez, you know, maybe this is it. You know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm dying. Or you lose people close to you. You're bereaved and you think, geez, that could have been me. Like, you know, like, you know, I, I saw how they were towards the end. You know, do I want to feel the same way when I look back in my life? And so confronting our own death or the death of others, I think, is one of the most powerful tools, this memento mori we mentioned earlier. It's a form of know yourself because it makes us shift perspective so radically that we can question these values and start to think, you know, what, what actually are my genuine priorities in life? What is my fundamental goal? Um, and, you know, it's a constant effort to keep dragging ourselves because there are forces at play to drag us in the opposite direction, you know, and by forces, I don't, you know, I mean society, like the news, social media, other people, you know, bombarding us with uh, their persuasion, like their influence kind of like, you know, unintentionally for the most part, I think, sometimes intentionally, trying to kind of like dupe us or talk us into things. And we're all super gullible. You know, in a way, the Stoics wanted us to be less gullible, to kind of think more rationally, to, to rely on our own judgment more and to think more critically before, before we run out of time. It, this makes me think of the uh, the actor Michael Landon when he was facing his imminent death and he had this line, I wish I'd known that I was one day closer to death every day. I would have lived differently. Um, I remember hearing about that and that just impacted me of, yeah, I mean, when you get to the end of this, what is this going to look like? I, I am wondering then, how did the Stoics and how would you recommend dealing with the death of others? I think the first thing the Stoics would say is that we have to prepare for these things in advance. The, the Stoics think we bury our head in the sand too much. And they, they talk about how, look, death is the common law of all of mankind. It, it's the one thing that we know with most certainty is that everybody so far, every single human being so far in history has died. And you put it like that, it seems ridiculous that we can have, still manage to be in denial of it, right? We hide uh, uh, our, like, uh, ourselves away from the, the prospect of death. We avoid thinking about it. And so they think the first thing is just to face up to it you know, to recognize it, to visualize it. Like Ebenezer Scrooge in uh, Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol, the ghost of future, uh, Christmas yet to come, if I remember rightly, drags him into the future and shows him his own funeral. Like, that's a memento mori. We should visualize our own funeral. We should think about what it's going to be like when we're gone. Um, Seneca, every night when he went to bed, used to say, he says that as he put his head uh, down and he went to, to sleep, he would say to himself, maybe I won't wake up tomorrow, which sounds, you know, um, pretty somber. 
And then each morning he says, he'd say to himself, you know, maybe this is going to be my last day on earth. You know, maybe I, I, I won't, you know, I won't make it to the end of the day. Like, so he's constantly reminding himself to think, you know, what if this is it? What if this is your last opportunity? And, you know, not to think, oh, I'm just going to go on a massive hedonistic binge. But, you know, to, to force yourself to think, what, what, what do I really value, though? What's re- what do I want to be remembered for? Like, what do I want my life to actually stand for? Um, those are some of the ways that the Stoics do it. But there's another technique, which is also very important in Stoicism, which I think kind of dovetails with this. So we've got a bit of a segue here into another exercise. And it's probably the most popular Stoic exercise today, I think. We call it the view from above. Hadopia Hado called it the view from above. We don't know what the Stoics called it. So it consists in visualizing your life from high above and imagining your place within the totality of time and the totality of cosmic space, like the whole context and our place within it and how small the corner of the earth is that we live on and how brief, Marx really says, like the turn of a screw our entire life is. And so when we visualize this vast cosmic perspective and our place within it, the Stoics believe that it allows us to confront the reality of our situation, but in a more detached way. And that's bound up with, when we visualize that, we have to kind of imagine, oh yeah, our life is going to end. Like, and vast aeons will follow, in which, you know, after a while, people won't even remember it. Someone will say your name one day for the last time. Like, someone will remember you one day for the last time, and then never again. Then after that, no one will ever remember you again. Like, you know, Marcus Aurelius, funnily enough, tells himself this, ironically, and yet we're, we're 2000, nearly 2,000 years later, we're still talking about him, right? He probably never even imagined we'd still be going on about him like 1,800 years uh, in the future after his death. But eventually, someone will mention Marcus Aurelius for the last time. Someone will mention Stoicism for the last time, and then it'll be gone from the universe forever. So to imagine the bigger picture is to imagine also the transience of all things, like the Buddhists say, the impermanence of things, including uh, of our own existence. How do you think through, like one of the questions I get people push back on is, okay, we, this, this universe is so vast, we can't even comprehend it. And we are so small, we're so insignificant, but at the same time, we're the center of our own universe. Uh, I'm just wondering how, how you wrestle through that idea, right? Where certain people bring up, well, yeah. if I'm so insignificant, then like, why does anything matter? Why would I do anything? And I'm just wondering how you think it through. I think that it's interesting. I like stoicism, like is a philosophy built on paradox, like um, Socrates' philosophy before them was as well. Socrates is kind of like the godfather of Stoicism. And I think really, many, I th- I, my gut feeling is that many of the philosophical answers to life's questions have to seem paradoxical. They're going to be surprising answers. They're going to be like squaring a circle. Like, you know, because often it's our language that constrains us. We don't have a good way of articulating certain concepts. We create false dichotomies. And the only way to smash through that, like, and to see things more accurately is to sometimes introduce new terminology, like to figure out ways to, to, to mash two concepts together that we don't normally combine. Um, so we, we're going to have to think pretty radically. And this is an interesting example because the Stoics say we, on the one hand, they think it's valuable to be very grounded in the present moment like, and not to be too preoccupied with the future or the past, but at the same time to be aware of the broader context in which we inhabit. So they want to combine this sense of infinity with this centeredness and right actually where our volition is exercised and our act of will, like deep in the very core of our being where our actions originate, they want us to be grounded in that centre from moment to moment, but also aware of the totality of space and time. I think we can, first of all, do both because we can ground our attention on our locus of control, on our acts of will, while simultaneously having a kind of peripheral, peripheral awareness like that the universe extends like uh, in in space and time vastly around us. So I, I think we can kind of like, combine those two things. And then in terms of like the significance of it, I think what the Stoics would say is that, yeah, like historic events seem less significant when we take this long view. Um, but... The, the, the ability to, to grasp that, I mean, we, we wouldn't be able to see those historic events in perspective 
unless we were able to exercise reason and exercise wisdom, like our very ability to see how insignificant um, the rise and fall of great empires is in the grand scheme of things turns on us using our mind like in the right way, using reason like to, to think about the broader context. So our ability to think clearly and rationally like and to think in terms of the bigger picture becomes more important, more valuable. And so Stoic, this is kind of related to virtue and wisdom. Like it's a type, wisdom becomes more important while external events become relatively less important. Like, so they, it makes one aspect of our experience, our consciousness becomes more important, whereas the events that befall us become less significant. Again, it's kind of like a paradox, like, or just a radical shift in, uh, in perspective. I'm curious about your own stairway to wisdom. And it seems like you've come in contact with so many of these different exercises. What does your practice look like today? Are you still having to focus on some of these big type of questions or were they answered and now you've just been living them? I guess a kind of combination, you know, like it, it sometimes it kind of creeps up on you a bit. I've been, I mean, I'm, I'm very much in favor of psychological exercises. I, that was my area of expertise in a way. For many years, I trained psychotherapists and I was like, I would call myself like a techniques guy. I studied and classified many different psychological techniques and I trained day in, day out psychologists and coaches and using those techniques. I got feedback from them. Um, I trained clients extensively and using a range of toolboxes of psychological techniques. That said, you know, I'm also aware, again, paradoxically, of the limits of that perspective. Many of the techniques of therapy are actually just ways of looking at things. So when people say, I want to learn techniques, I want to learn practices, they kind of usually imagine breathing differently or visualizing something or, or something like that. But a technique can also just be a concept. Like sometimes just understanding things from a different perspective is a strategy, a practice or a, a technique. And I found that over time, talking about people and talking about life uh, with different people changed me. Um, exploring techniques changed me as well as doing techniques is important, but also thinking about the techniques and how they're connected to one another changes your character and changes your experience of life. And sometimes, you know, you'll find that what was a conscious practice ends up just becoming something that you do automatically. After a while, you just, you know, perhaps to begin with, you sit down and you maybe we, you would even listen to an audio recording. We have audio recordings of the view from above for 20 minutes where you really visualize it in detail and think about it in different ways. And you might do that for a while. And then after a while, you might just find that you automatically, when an event happens, like uh, that's kind of annoying, you, you instinctively just think of it in terms of a much broader perspective you know, almost unconsciously. Um, it's just a, a shift in perspective that you adopt quite naturally. So I still do try each day to think about my own mortality. Um, I think about the view from above. I study Stoic texts. I discuss Stoic texts. I use the Socratic method to kind of question assumptions that I'm making. And I employ a bunch of other Stoic techniques like some on an ad hoc basis, some on a daily basis. Um, but yeah, like I guess I have a, a routine that I follow and then also I have other things that uh, I just do without even thinking about it. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty nice after decades of work to have a, a toolkit you can go back to uh, d depending on what you need. I, I am wondering, you said like there were certain things that you just, you need to see things differently to have, just to have a different perspective on things. I'm wondering for you, what, what have been some of the foundational lessons that have just taken the longest for you to learn? What's well, been difficult for me to learn, gosh. Um, well, one is like one of my favorite topics is anger. The, the ancient Stoics believed that anger was one of the main emotions that we need to tackle. Now, in modern therapy, it's probably one of the most neglected negative emotions. And there's a reason for that. Um, we usually say very simply there are three main categories of negative emotion, anger, fear, and sadness, broadly speaking. And other emotions are kind of a combination thereof or variation thereof. Um, people who are anxious or sad, depressed, 
typically go to therapy or they read self-help books. They tend to become quite introspective about their anxiety or their depression. Um, people who are angry, though, externalize and blame other people. So they're more likely to think that you guys all need to go to therapy, not me. Like, and they're less likely to self-refer. They're more likely to be referred by other people. So a spouse might refer their husband or, or wife to have therapy. They might say, you really need to go and do something about your anger. Or parents might send their children or in prisons or in the military or other institutions. People might be told, or schools might be told that they need anger management. But people with anger are, are usually reluctant, um, broadly speaking. Like overall, they typically are more reluctant to go and seek help or to use self-help. Now, we live in a culture that's awash with self-help information. And one downside of that is that means that people invest a lot of time and energy focusing on other everything except anger. Right. So in a way, it's a distraction. Like, you know, ironically, uh, paradoxically, you know, it, it, all the emphasis on self-help in our culture often just like glosses over or um, leads people further and further away from acknowledging the issues that they have with anger. There's very little discussion online of self-improvement strategies for coping with anger, interestingly. And often people in self-help communities are angry people. Like, and you'll see them flaming and arguing and, and stuff like that. Some self-help gurus are noticeably quite angry, uh, sometimes quite insulting to people that disagree with them or abusive individuals that have quite angry followers, I think it's fair to say. Um, and that's because there's blind spot that we have. The, so the Stoics, we have an entire book by Seneca on the Stoic psychotherapy for anger that survives today called On Anger. Marcus Aurelius talks extensively about coping with anger. So I, when I was a young guy, I had a lot of anger. Um, I, I look back on it now and I kind of think, yeah, like, you know, there are reasons for it. I think other people in the same situation, like, like you know, there's a reason for everything. I can understand why someone else growing up in the environment that I grew up in would be uh, come out of it quite angry. Um, and it took me a long time to kind of get over that. But Stoicism helped me to do it. The Stoics think anger is pretty pointless. The, there's a belief that many people have that anger could be useful, that it motivates us to fight injustice. Um, I think that's one of the dumbest ideas in history, personally. Um, I think that, that really is just making a, an excuse for something that's inherently flawed. The way I would explain it very simply is there's a meme on the internet that says, drink coffee, do stupid things faster and with more energy, it says. right, And that's how I think of this theory of anger. It's like saying the, the idea that anger motivates us to fight injustice is like saying, you know, get angry, do stupid things faster and with more energy. Like, because anger does give us energy, it does motivate us, but it biases our judgment tremendously. We know that when people are angry, they uh, exhibit more black and white thinking, they think in sweeping over generalizations, they jump prematurely to conclusions, they assume that they can uh, read other people's minds, they, you know, they, they think, I, that guy's doing this because of da 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 So they, there's no element of doubt. Like they, 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 they jump prematurely to conclusions about other people's motives, usually. Um, they engage in confirmation bias, so they focus on reasons to get angry and ignore other evidence that, that might moderate that. Uh, they underestimate risk, typically, um, so they're more likely to expose themselves and other people to danger, which ironically makes them, in a sense, weak or vulnerable. Like someone who's really angry and is fighting might be more likely to drop their guard, for example. They think more about hurting the other person than they do about protecting themselves. So they endanger themselves, like they make themselves vulnerable, ironically. Um, so a lot of things go wrong when we get angry. And that's the price we pay for the boost in motivation that we get. Uh, the Stoics would say it's not worth paying that price. Like, you know, what's the point in having it? And actually, the more you think about it, the crazier this idea is, because you're now it's like you're putting more energy into like a computer program that's inherently flawed, yeah. like and making bad decisions. Yeah, you're gonna make bad decisions with a lot more confidence when you're angry. Like, like and often you'll see when people fight injustice throughout history and they do it with anger, often they suddenly wake up one day and think, hang on, have I turned into the bad guy here? Like, you know, I, I, I'm now persecuting the people that I felt persecuted by. And now, now, now maybe I'm a, a tyrant and a persecutor. I've turned into like 
you know, the, the thing that I thought I was trying to, to fight against. You see that over and over throughout history. Um, you know, so I think we have to be very careful to try and step outside of that cycle. And uh, when I was young, that was one of the things that I really wrestled with. And I think one of the main things that I've taken from Stoicism is this ability to challenge anger using Marcus Aurelius, again, lists 10 different cognitive techniques that he uses to uh, question anger or transform anger. I find those strategies useful. And also just, you know, seeing anger not as a feeling, but as a, uh, a cognition, as a belief, um, allowed me to question it. This is fundamental to stoicism and to cognitive therapy. We normally assume that our reason versus the emotions. So we have our thoughts and beliefs are over here and our feelings are over here and they're like two separate systems that operate in parallel somehow. And the Stoics say, yeah, maybe that's all completely wrong. Like maybe emotions are beliefs. Like they're integrated with them, you know, pretty much from the outset. And then to be angry wouldn't just to be to feel a certain way. It would be to think angry thoughts. And maybe those angry thoughts are mistaken. Maybe they're uh, placing exaggerated importance on things. Maybe they involve generalizations. So as soon as you recognize that anger isn't just a feeling, it's also a way of thinking, it makes it much more fragile because you can start to question whether it's a valid way of thinking whether it's a rational way of thinking or whether it involves self-deceit as a way of thinking. And, and, and if it does, if it turns out anger is a lie, like we tell ourselves, if it's based on beliefs that turn out to be false, like then it, it, the, the ability to really see that would potentially liberate us from it. So if, if anger is let's just call it an unhealthy form of energy, right? Because of all the biases, all the blind spots that it could lead to. What's a, a healthier form of energy or motivation that you've seen to be more sustainable and lead to better outcomes? Well, this is going to sound corny, but it's the answer that the Stoics would give. It's love. Uh, philosophy is love. Um, the clue is in the name. Everyone forgets this now, although I think at some level many people are aware of it. The word philosophy means love of wisdom. It comes from philia sophia. Um, love, uh, mean, love, kind of platonic love, like the, the love you, you would have for a, a really close friend, um, affection, like and, and wisdom. So all philosophers in the ancient world, because they spoke Greek, like even the Roman philosophers spoke and wrote in Greek. They, when they said philosophy, they literally were saying love of wisdom. Like so, they knew it was all about loving something. Interestingly, we've lost that. Right? When we talk about philosophy, it sounds more unemotional to us, yeah. where it's, it's baked into the very word when spoken in Greek, that you're talking about a kind of healthy passion, like a, a love for something. So what is love? Um, you know, the Stoics thought that to love a person is, again, it's a paradox. It combines acceptance um, of their flaws and imperfections with a desire for them to flourish uh, by achieving wisdom so we, we we have to learn to befriend and love ourselves and also then to befriend and to to love other people and the the stoics think that you know anger is kind of like the desire for revenge it's the desire to hurt our enemies and the, the stoics thought that that's foolish and it would be better if we could replace it with kindness compassion love but more fundamentally the desire to help our enemies not by giving them money or resources, like, because that would seem crazy. Why would I give loads of bags of money to my enemies? That would seem like a terrible idea, right? They might uh, use it against me. But the Stoics would say, well, hang on a minute. We've already, we were already assuming that we've done all this questioning values stuff. We faced our own mortality. And we thought money's not the most important thing. The, 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 the most important thing in life is moral wisdom. So to help someone fundamentally would be to enlighten them. By, and share moral wisdom with them. And if you enlightened your enemies, you would transform them into your friends. Like, so our, that should be our fundamental desire, is to enlighten ourselves and to enlighten our enemies. Uh, and then it's no, there's no scarcity of wisdom. You know, it doesn't run out. Like if you share wisdom with other people, it, it just means there's more wisdom going around. Like it doesn't mean, oh, I don't have as much wisdom now because I gave some to that one of my enemies. It's not like money in that regard. Like, so it transforms everything. We can desire the same thing for ourselves that we desire for our friends and even our enemies. 
which is just for everybody like to become wise and enlightened and to flourish. And the Stoics think if we achieved that, it would be like a utopian society. But the other paradox about this is that then we would all die of boredom. Like, so the, the Stoics think, well, you could get frustrated and think, well, why aren't we already in a utopian society? And the Stoics, the Stoics would say, but we kind of need society to be imperfect because that's kind of why we're here. Yeah. Like, it's to deal with those imperfections. It's the challenge. It's like sparring. Like, they compare it to wrestling and boxing. You know, you need to have a sparring partner to work on your own. It's all about the journey and the progress. Yeah, like, if we were already at the end of the journey and living in, in utopia, like, it, it, you know, that's not what human life is about. And it would be deadly boring in a way. Like, so ironically, we need to accept the, the evil and the folly and the wisdom in the world as being part of what makes life worth living. You know, although at the same time, we, we want to transcend it my, and to improve things and get beyond it. I'm wondering, Donald, what, what you've uncovered about speeding up someone else's path to wisdom. You were mentioning mm -hmm. earlier in your life you, you were prone to anger and, and you evolved and got better. How, how much can we actually help someone and how much just has to be learned experience, right? Like I, I forget one of the old Taoist sayings around like you can pull on a, a flower, but you're only going to make it grow so fast. Like you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. Kind exactly, of thing. yeah. We mainly have books from the, well, we only have books from the ancient Stoics. They're all dead, right? They've been dead for ages. Like, and that kind of distorts our perception a little bit because in the ancient world, the Stoics thought the books were of secondary importance. The main thing, um, Seneca says that the early Stoics learned the most by being around Zeno, the, the founder of the Stoic school. They ate their lunch with him. Like, they hung out with him. Um, and Seneca says it wasn't from books or even so much from his lectures. It was from knowing the guy in person. So it was from role modeling, right, that the Stoics thought we could learn the most. Um, and sometimes we're unlucky and we don't have anyone that we can learn from. But the, the thing that can accelerate a learning, the thing I think that we can benefit from is being able to uh, befriend or to share the company of people who exhibit wisdom and strength of character. Um, and then that, that I think can benefit us in some ways. We have to be ready to learn. I mean, there are people that, uh, have good company and they don't benefit from it in any way, but if you're willing to learn from the people around you, I think you can speed up your rate of improvement. If you seek out, this is a cliche in ancient philosophy. If you seek out the company of the wise and the good, then potentially, you know, that can benefit you a, a great deal. Um, and also by questioning ourselves systematically, I think, or allowing ourselves to be questioned by other people, you know, that allows, I think one of the main, the, it, you could ask the question the other way around is like, how can you avoid making progress? Suppose you wanted to remain stuck, like, and you wanted a, a really cool strategy for remaining stuck. I could tell you right now exactly what it is and, you know, the, the first piece of corroborating evidence is that it's an incredibly common strategy you'll find all over the world. Like, there are many different coping strategies that people exhibit for dealing with emotions, um, and they fall into different categories. We can group them. But the most common category is avoidance. It takes many forms. Like, but typically, if someone feels anxious, they'll just avoid the situations that make them anxious. That cured it. So you've got a dog phobia. Just don't go near dogs. Problem solved, right? Or they'll take drugs or alcohol to suppress the emotion or they'll binge TV or something to distract themselves from it. So distraction is a form of avoidance, avoidance strategies, the most popular coping strategy in the world. So at the very least, we could just stop doing avoidance. We could avoid avoidance and we could start to like expose ourselves to challenging situations voluntarily more in life and be open to learning for, from them, do it more patiently, you know. Uh, one, so one way to speed up and to accelerate our self-improvement is just to abandon these avoidant uh, coping strategies that hold us back. You, you mentioned taking on and overcoming great obstacles, right, with, with courage and, and honorable deeds. I would love if you tell the uh, the tale of Hercules and Arte because I think that's... Yeah. It's a, well, first of all, like a bit of weird context. How do we even know this story? They, it's important to Stoicism 
because one of our sources says that Zeno, the founder of Stoicism, was a Phoenician. He was a foreign merchant uh, who was shipwrecked near Athens, lost his fortune at sea, found himself at a bookshop, and he started reading book two of the Memorabilia Socrates by Xenophon. And uh, he, it's interesting because our source doesn't mention anything else about it. So when I began studying Stoicism, I thought, I'll go and get the Memorabilia Socrates. We still have it. What's it? What's book two? Like, I can't, I've read it. Like, I can't remember what's in book two. And I thought, I wonder if there's anything interesting in there. Well, funnily enough, he must be referring to the one of the most famous speeches of antiquity, which happens to be what that chapter is mainly about. And we call that speech the choice of Hercules today. So we have it because Xenophon writes down uh, what he claims was Socrates' version of the speech. And Socrates heard it from a sophist called Prodicus, who he was kind of friends with. So it was originally written by this guy called Prodicus, then it goes through Socrates, then it goes through Xenophon, and then it kind of comes down to us. We've got this kind of like third or fourth hand version of it today, filtered through Socrates' mind. And the idea is that Hercules is a young man. He's a, a, he gets lost in a wood and he's at a, a fork in the road. And uh, he sits down, he's not sure whether to go down the left path or the right path. And then two very tall women appear out of the woods. Now, to an ancient Greek, that would denote that they were goddesses. Like, they're kind of like uh, larger-than-life figures. And one of them pushes to the front, and she's a very attractive, like, seductive woman. And she says, Hercules, if you follow my path, you'll have everything. You'll be rich, you'll be famous, you'll be waited on by the labour of other men. Like, you'll have sex all day with partners of your choosing. You'll eat ex ex foods from all over the world. You know, everything, it just kind of, like, sounds awesome. Like, uh, but Hercules is kind of savvy enough to say, well, hang on a minute, let me hear what the other woman has to say. Um, and incidentally, this woman says that her name is Eudaimonia. Like, she tells him that's her name. But the other woman comes forward uh, eventually, and, and she's more kind of modest. And she holds back a little bit more. And she says something shocking. She says, I'm going to tell you right now at the outset, so, uh, Hercules, I'll be honest with you. If you follow my path, it's going to be a lot harder. It's not going to be like this. It's going to be tough. Like, you know, people will persecute you. They'll ridicule you. They, you'll be alienated from society. You'll wander the earth in poverty. You'll struggle with one challenge after another. But at the end of it, uh, if you endure, you'll have something that, that this other woman can never give you, like, which is the ability to look back on your life with a sense of fulfillment and satisfaction. And uh, Hercules thinks about this and he makes this paradoxical choice that he'd rather have the harder path because he wants to be a hero. Like, uh, he wants to achieve strength, courage, self-discipline, something that he can admire in other people and he'd like to be able to admire in himself. Um, if he took the easy path, then one day he'd be lying in his deathbed thinking, yeah, but what was the point of it all? Like, and so he he then, according to legend, undertakes the 12 labours, like, which is kind of like this I, symbolises the most difficult, challenging life that someone could ever endure. And at the end of it, he undergoes an apotheosis and Zeus makes him a god. Like He achieves uh, kind of, uh, I guess, enlightenment or... Um, a kind of perfection, Eudaimonia. This first goddess uh, lied. Her name wasn't Eudaimonia or fulfillment or happiness. She uh, pretends that she's offering fulfillment or happiness, but her name is Kakia, which means vice or wickedness or wretchedness, being degenerate. And the other goddess is Arate or virtue, which is the goal of Stoicism. And Zeno, uh, uh, Zeno heard the story when he'd lost everything and he thought, this inspired me. It's an exhortation to philosophy. And it's what we would, today would call motivational speech. In the ancient world, it was called protractic. It's a style of speech that's designed to motivate particularly young men to embark on a, a life of virtue and philosophy. And he heard this and it did motivate him. And he said, right, I'm going to go off and dedicate my life to studying philosophy. I want to be the sort of person that I admire. Yeah, well, I mean, as Zeno's followers would call it a shortcut to virtue, I'm wondering how you think about these voluntary hardships in our own life. Yeah, well, like having cold showers and stuff like that. I think um, <laughs> we, we were ready to go cold shower. I'm just thinking about like even facing difficult challenges, right? Like even taking on a new job. Are you going to oh, move things like yeah. that? 
there are two, I guess there's two types. When we talk about voluntary hardship, the ancient Greeks did do stuff like that. You know, they would um, uh, dress in, in simple clothes and they would, uh, they dressed in a way, the cynic philosophers in particular, particular, they wore very cheap, very plain clothes that didn't keep them very warm in, in the winter. They ate a very simple diet. They would fast. They drank water instead of wine. So they'd kind of tough it out. I mean, to be honest, though, I've always thought this kind of hardship that they talk about sounds to me just like going on a camping trip. Like, you know, if you've ever been uh, in the wilderness and you go camping, I used to do that when I was a kid, and I was like, Dude, like everyone does that when you go camping, you don't you just drink water and you like you know rations and you you carry a backpack all day and you tough it out and you sleep in a camp bed on the floor and all that. People do that for fun. Like it's funny to then to hear some people go, "Oh, I don't think do that voluntary hardship stuff." And you're like, "Well, just you know go on a camping holiday." Like your kids get made to do stuff like that when they're in the Boy Scouts and things. Jeez, it's not it's not really that big a deal. But Jen, so some people, many Stoics today do take cold showers and they do intermittent fasting and stuff like that because, you know, they want to uh, develop some kind of self-mastery, uh, self-discipline. Um, and so also just doing physical exercise requires self-discipline, you know, like doing press-ups or doing yoga or something like that requires patience and discipline and it's a form of enduring hardship. But also socially, you know, just being honest with people, um, being tolerant, I mean, I, like the one of the stoic virtues is temperance uh, or self-discipline. I mean, your our main opportunity to exercise that today is when someone calls you an idiot on uh, the internet. You know, like that's probably our most common opportunity to exercise temperance, patience, and tolerance is putting up with um, you know other people's uh, antisocial behaviour nowadays because we're exposed to more of it. I guess in a, a sense. Um, so that's a, a challenge, um, learning not to react to it, like being able to kind of rise above it is a great opportunity for, for training in, uh, in virtue, basically, or, you know, other taking on challenging jobs and pushing yourself in life. The, the Stoics, there's an interesting point I'd make about this, that Epictetus, sometimes people will say, well, how much should I push myself? Yeah. Like... You know, in therapy, um, we know that when people expose themselves to situations that cause anxiety, like usually their anxiety will naturally abate if they do it repeatedly and for prolonged periods. But I mean, sometimes if you put someone in a situation that's too anxiety provoking, it can be overwhelming. It, it can be hard for them. Like we don't want to, you know, throw them in at the deep end too much. Um, certainly particular types of individuals might be overwhelmed. So we do it in a more graduated stepwise manner we'd start with baby steps more perhaps um, or at least start you know like with something that's uh, more manageable um epictetus talks about this with his students he says look you you're the only person that can judge your own ability like you need to strike a balance between you know stay remaining in your comfort zone he says if hercules had just like cozied under the blankets and he'd never gone out to, to face the 12 labors. He goes, you wouldn't even call him Hercules. You wouldn't even deserve the name. Mm. Like you, you wouldn't admire him. There'd be, there'd be nothing to heroic about him um, if, he, if he hadn't gone out and faced challenges. But you're not Hercules. So how do you know what challenges you can face? And he says, well, you do it in steps and stages and you learn from your experience. Like, and you're the only person that can really judge that. The Stoics would compare it. In the ancient world, most people had a lot more experience of um, combat sports or martial arts than, than we do today. I mean, we, like, people today are into martial arts, but uh, it was kind of more part, like, everybody, um, every young man in ancient uh, Greece uh, did boxing and wrestling and pankrati, and it was part of the uh, military cadet training, basically, um, it was part of their way of life. So all, all the philosophers are very familiar with these kind of fighting sports. And so they would say, well, how do you choose a sparring partner? Right. It can't be somebody like that's much smaller and weaker than you that you're just going to beat easily every time because then you're not going to learn anything. But it can't be this guy that's like, you know, twice your size is just going to pummel you into the ground every time because then you're just going to get demoralized. You're not really going to learn anything. You need to pick someone who's, you know, about your level or maybe slightly better 
so that you can test yourself and challenge yourself. So you, you pick an appropriate sparring partner or the, the training master would help you do that. And so say that this is true of life in general. Like every individual is going to have to pick different challenges that suit their level of self-discipline, endurance, like and self-awareness. Um, so that requires to come back to where you started, my friend, that we would have to know ourselves in order to, to be a good judge of that. I mean, I'm intrigued about the the connection between the mental um, practices that they use and also the, the physical. You mentioned wrestling and combat sports, things like that. What did what, what was the underlying framework they were operating off of of the importance of the the health health component as well? They think the mind and body, like the Stoics, do do not really um, see the mind and body as two separate things. Mm-hmm. Um, they're materialists in a sense. Um, they don't have this metaphysical idea that we inherited from the Middle Ages of the, the, the soul being like a ghost in the machine. Like uh, they, they think of the, um, the psyche as being more embodied. And so to, to look after the psyche, we would also have to look after the body. They're two sides of the same coin. Um, Socrates has a really neat argument, again, in the memorabilia Socrates, um, he's talking to a young guy who doesn't do any exercise. And Socrates says, um, why don't you do exercise? And he says, well, I'd rather look after my mind. You know, I think it's kind of a, too much of a diver. I haven't really got time to exercise and stuff like that. And Socrates, you know, goes in these usual kind of roundabout discussion where he basically says, like, so if, if you exercise, are you less likely or more likely to get illnesses and stuff? And the guy's like, well, if you're fit and you exercise, you'd be healthier, you'd be less likely to get sick, right? And Socrates says, well, when you get sick, does that make it easier for you to reason or harder for you to reason? And the guy's like, well, it makes it harder for you to reason when you get sick, right? Because you get fever and stuff and it clouds your judgment. And then Socrates says, well, doesn't it stand to reason then that if you really value the mind and you want to be able to think clearly and rationally, that you would need to exercise your body as well. Because if your body gets sick, then it prevents you from being able to think rationally. And, and so this guy's like, oh yeah, I guess I hadn't really thought about it like that. But that's how a lot of Socratic dialogues end with people going, oh yeah, I hadn't really thought about it like that. So it's a, an incredibly simple argument though, but it shows also Socrates saying you need to um, take your body seriously if you want to be a philosopher. Thinking about what you just said around Socrates, and he can basically kind of illuminate the, the thinking there and the insights you have. Is there a modern day person that that you've come across that kind of falls under that category of a, someone like a Socrates? I don't think so. Um, people have asked me this before about modern day role models, and I thought, why do I struggle to answer that question? And I think the reason is that if I was to think about the people that I found most inspiring. They tend not to be modern-day athletes or intellectuals or celebrities. And some ways, those are the people I find least inspiring like, for a number of reasons. Um, but the, the people that inspire me the most are, are quite anonymous individuals that are, you know, guys, so several of them are recovering alcoholics or drug addicts that I've known who had kind of hit rock bottom. And then, kind of again, this thing of coming to terms with your own mortality you know, some of the most profound people I've ever met are people whose life just collapsed, like, and then they started again from scratch. And I, instead of going under, they tried to rebuild from nothing, like a sense of purpose, and you know, give themselves a, a, a goal in life. And you know, and they made progress doing that. And I found that inspiring. I used to work um, for a drugs project, and it's also, also my career as a therapist. I've met a number of people that were. Um, recovering uh, alcoholics or drug addicts um, and those individuals who are not famous are are people that I felt kind of hum- the most humbled by and thought geez I wish I had that guy's integrity and, and self-discipline and stuff but I've never turned on the TV um, frequently and saw the latest self-help guru and thought oh geez I wish I was that guy because um, usually, you know, I mean, a lot of these people are just raging narcissists, to be honest. Like, <laughs> you know, like, or some of them are. Like, you know, the, it's like this. In the ancient world, the, the sophists were the self-improvement gurus of ancient Greece, and, and Socrates kind of felt the, the same way. 
Um, it's easy to kind of set yourself up as a guru. You know, you just cherry pick ideas that people think are cool. Like it doesn't necessarily mean that you're, you know, embodying them. So like we get the gurus that we deserve. Like uh, I think we're better not to look on, you know, uh, to best-selling authors and um, and YouTube and stuff for for the best gurus in life. You're better to look, I think, closer to home. The Galen, who's Marcus Aurelius's physician, wrote a book about how to find a, a guru um, or how to find a role model. And that book survives. It's called On the Diagnosis and Cure of the Soul's Passions. And it's influenced by Stoic writings to some extent. He kind of had a love-hate relationship with Stoics, Galen. And uh, he says, you should look for older men to be your role models that you've, uh, that you know, that you've known personally. And uh, you might think, why would he say that? Like, why does he just think age brings wisdom or something like that? And he says, no, the reason is that there's more opportunity for you to observe how they've actually lived their life. So sometimes you might see young guys and they seem like they're wise and they, they've got strength of character, but then over the years you see that it ends up badly for them. Like, you know, their true character emerges more. And he goes, so Galen's argument is that somebody who's past middle age, you know, you've got more opportunities to see how they've actually handled their relationships, how they've dealt with challenges over or longer. There's more proof, there's more evidence, basically, to decide whether they, they've genuinely um, got a good character or not. And, and he, he talks about how to benefit from these people. He says you have to be completely honest and open with them like, and, uh, and be tolerant of their, uh, their, them criticising uh, your flaws and disagreeing with you. These are familiar concepts in ancient philosophy, um, I think. I, that, that's, the, that's where I would look for role models. They often, uh, among people who have genuinely faced uh, adversity, um, not among people who have had cushy lives. Well, Donald, I appreciate that answer so much more than just rattling off a bunch of names. We understand the reasoning why, the the, the how behind, they, how they thought, how you think that through. That's, I think, way more helpful and beneficial to us all. One thing I'm really intrigued about, because uh, over the weekend, I had multiple people for some reason bring this up, and what they think about is the, the downward spiral of negative thinking, right? I'm pretty sure it's decatastrophizing, essentially, where you continue that down. In, in your experience, has there been anything to to stop that or, or help that so that we don't go down that negative spiral of negative thinking? Yeah, like that's one of my main areas of interest. So there's two types of kind of spiraling thinking, basically. Um, we call it perseverative thinking, technically, where it's like a process of thinking that kind of goes on too long. Okay. And it's, it's a very common problem in depression and anxiety. Um, when it happens in depression, we tend to call it rumination. And when it happens in anxiety, we typically call it worrying. So these are technical terms in psychology that describe specific cognitive styles. Um, worried thinking tends to, is very cliched, by the way. Like it tends to involve going, what if this happens? What if that happens? How will I cope, broadly speaking? And so technically, what that involves is an exaggerated appraisal of the probability and severity of threat and an, uh, a, a low appraisal of your coping ability. Like, so it's biased, there's a number of biases involved in that thinking. And rumination and depression tends to involve a lot of why questions that are kind of abstract and vague and ambiguous and difficult to answer. So both these thinking styles are circular. They go around and round and round and round. And there are a number of ways that people can snap out of it. Um, the most effective technique that we know is actually called, technically it's called the stimulus control method. And uh, it's also called worry postponement. It's a kind of more descriptive term or rumination postponement. So it sounds a bit odd at first, but this is the kind of most robust technique that we know of. And then we usually have to combine it with other things. So in the 1980s, there was a study conducted with a bunch of college students in America who are asked very simply to observe worry episodes, to notice what the thing was they were worrying about, like money or health or whatever. Write it down on a bit of paper. Like I'm worrying that I might catch AIDS and die, or I'm worried that I might go bankrupt or something. And then fold it up and put it in their pocket. 
and focus their attention on the here and now instead and tell themselves, I'll come back and think about that later. So the key thing is this idea of postponing thinking about it. And then you would set aside a specific time and place, like so seven o'clock, um, sitting in my armchair by the window. And that's when I'll take the paper out and I'll now voluntarily uh, choose to, to think about it. And that sounds like a kind of an odd technique. Um, there's a number, I won't go into the rationale for it, but there is a rationale for it. But I'll, go, I'll mention that the outcome was broadly speaking, in that study, they found a 50% reduction in the frequency, intensity, and duration of worry episodes on average. And so that technique is used like across the board with a wide range of different problems now. So the, there are other strategies we can employ, but the key is that the, tr the trick here is that circular thinking is actually, um, people believe it's out of control. So if you have people who have pathological worrying and you say um, from zero to 100%, how strongly do you agree with this statement? My worrying is, uh, is uncontrollable. They'll usually say 100%. Like, and they're wrong. Like it's a mistake because worrying and, and rumination are actually high level voluntary cognitive processes that are, are basically under voluntary control. They're, they're voluntary thought processes, but people feel like they're involuntary. And the reason is that they're triggered by an initial automatic thought or stimulus. Um, and then people like vol uh, voluntarily uh, choose to ask themselves these questions and dwell on them. Um, and so with a bit of encouragement and sometimes a little bit of training, people can learn to stop. Um, but really all they usually need to do is make a decision that they're going to postpone it and come back to it later. Of course, then the automatic thought might come back. You, you would just do the same thing again and say, I'll write it down, fold it up and do nothing. It's uh, one of the leading researchers in cognitive therapies, a guy called uh, Professor Adrian Wells in the UK. He's a pioneer of uh, research and social anxiety and generalized anxiety. And he developed a, a state-of-the-art form of cognitive therapy called metacognitive therapy that uses this method quite extensively. And Adrian Wells says, you know, basically the, the trick is learning to do nothing in response to our intrusive thoughts. Because normally people have intrusive thoughts all the time and they just kind of shrug them off and, and don't do anything in response to them. But when people have anxiety disorders and depression, they they kind of get entangled with their intrusive thoughts more and they need to rediscover this Zen-like ability of just doing nothing, uh, just kind of going meh in response to, so not trying to suppress them or run away from them and not kind of analyzing them or struggling with them, but just kind of acknowledging them and then, and then carrying on with what you were previously doing, like just doing nothing. Um, that's the normal response. The best way to explain that is when you're lying in bed at night, if you suddenly think, oh, geez, you know, what if I get struck by lightning tomorrow? I heard there was going to be a storm. Like that may just be a thought that pops in your head, right? So normally you, you, you'd think, I'm trying to get to sleep. You know, I'll, 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 maybe I'll think about this tomorrow. Like it's not really a good time to think about it right now. So you would just kind of shrug it off. You wouldn't get worried about it and try and suppress it. You must go, I must not think that, I must not think that, I must not think that or something. You would just go, I'll think about that tomorrow if I have to, I'm not going to think about it right now. So it would be normal to set aside or to shrug off intrusive thoughts at night when you're trying to get to sleep. Now, people with pathological worry can't do that. So often they, they'll have problems getting to sleep, right? But we need to rediscover this natural ability to go meh. Like and do nothing. And so it's it really the, it, it, it's easier than it sounds, basically. And I, 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 the the practical way of doing it is just to write down what it is and then fold it up as if you're symbolising to yourself. I'll come back to this later. And then when you sit down and think it through, because you're now doing it voluntarily in a controlled environment, usually you'll experience the thoughts with more detachment and, and greater, a greater degree of self-awareness, which will tend to dilute the emotional impact that they have. So long story short, like we, we know that's quite a reliable technique. No, Donald, this is so helpful. I, I appreciate these insights so much uh, as we all try to ascend up that, uh, that stairway to wisdom. This is like an honor for me. I love getting to just kind of go further on so many topics with you. If you could do this with anyone, right? Like long form conversation, just with someone dead or alive, I have a feeling who you might say, but who would you love throughout all of history to sit down and just get to ask questions of? 
I, I'd like to talk to Socrates. He's kind of like my hero in this regard. I like Marcus Aurelius and Socrates, my two favorite philosophers, but Marcus Aurelius is much more kind of one dimensional guy. Socrates is the most enigmatic, complex, kind of charismatic, mysterious philosopher of all time. Um, I think many people I feel that way. He's he's not like Marcus Aurelius, you know. He's uh, uh, he's a very there are many layers to him. He's a, a very profound, complex thinker. So I, you know, I definitely, I, I, uh, I think he was quite a unique individual, and I'd, uh, I'd love to get a chance to talk to Socrates. Yeah, that would be a fascinating conversation. Well, your, your insights into, into Marcus Aurelius, that, that's how I first came across your work, your book, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, uh, The Stoic Philosophy of Marcus Aurelius, I thought was just exceptional. I, I loved that. I sent that to multiple people. I did a really extensive book recap because I just thought there were so many amazing insights on that. Uh, I know that's not the only book you've written. You, you have new projects coming out again and again. Where would you like to direct the listeners just so they can stay connected with you? Because I'm assuming a lot of them are going to want to learn some more things from you as we move forward here. Well, the book. The um, I've written maybe like six or seven books now because uh, I have some that are still in press. The one that came out recently is my graphic novel about Marcus Aurelius, which is called Verissimus. Like, so that's got a lot of Stoic philosophy, and I was hoping that that would make Stoicism more accessible to like a different demographic, like a, maybe a wider audience, because it's in a different format. Um, and I have another book that's a biography of Marcus Aurelius that's in press at the moment, it's written, but it will come out in the spring. If people want to find out about these books and about the courses that I run and the other things that I do, they can just go to my website, which is just donaldrobertson.name. So instead of .com, it's .name, and that will kind of link to my social media, and they'll see about the books and everything there. Fantastic. Donald. Well, like always, listeners, all that will be linked up, um, how you guys can stay connected with Donald, where you can pick up his books. But Donald Robinson, Robertson, I cannot thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. Well, likewise, it's been a pleasure. Thanks very much. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.